Welcome to Copyright Clearance Center's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Beyond the Book. It's Friday, February 8th, 2019. Our weekly guest on the show is Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly senior writer. He joins me today from the magazine's offices in New York City. Welcome back, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. So for the last four years, Andrew, this is the week of the year when we usually catch you somewhere in a European capital where you're huddled with editors of trade publishing magazines uh, from around the world. And, And this year, though, you and PW are doing the hosting, two days of meetings and discussions on the state of the global publishing business right there in New York City. Yeah, that's right. The the gang is all here in New York, and uh, we've had some good discussions so far, and some special guests have visited with us. We had uh, Marcus Dole, CEO of Penguin Random House, of course, come in for a chat with us. Uh, Peter Hildick-Smith will be joining us later today. Uh, and we're learning a lot about the state of the global publishing business, as we always do, and, and what things are looking like as we head into 2019. Uh, and following a theme we've discussed quite a bit on, in our most recent talks on this podcast and in Frankfurt, uh, Uh, The outlook for 2019 is generally pretty stable throughout the world, if not exactly uh, robust. Well, you have editors there, Andrew, from Book Report in Germany, Liv Hebdo in France, the bookseller in the UK, Dos Deque in Spain, uh, published news from Brazil. So you're you're using a lot of your language skills there. <laughs> um, and you've also got trade journalists from Italy, Australia, Sweden, Norway, even China. Give us some highlights from the various regions. Yeah. So, you know, basically so far, we've only really gotten through the European territories and some of the bigger territories. And I can give you some of the takeaways there. For example, in Germany, uh, where a strong holiday season reversed what had been sort of an alarming sales slide from 2017 and actually pulled the German market, uh, second largest book market in the world, I should mention, into positive territory. So it was a volatile year, uh, but the German book industry actually ended a hair above where it was last year, just about like a tenth of a percent above, uh, though there was a slight decline of about 1.4% in unit sales. And you, know, you may remember this as one of the big stories Uh, at Frankfurt in 2018 was the German Booksellers Association had shared a report showing that consistent price increases had actually masked dropping readership in Germany. In other words, because of higher prices, uh, revenue stayed flat. But when they actually got to looking at the numbers a little more closely, they were losing readers. They were hemorrhaging readers in a big way. So not exactly a recipe for winning new readers uh, and and a, a matter of concern still in Germany. And, you know, like the U.S., nonfiction sales generally led in Germany, and fiction also saw a decline. In France, meanwhile, despite an increase for the first half of the year, book sales actually finished down about 1.7% uh, in 2018. Now, that data doesn't include Amazon, uh, which, of course, doesn't always play nice with others in terms of its data. So we'll see where the, where things end up when the Amazon data sort of gets estimated in. But Fabrice Pio, who, of course, is the editor of Leave Hebdo, thought that you know if you factored in Amazon sales, that things would most likely be positive in France. And the number of titles has remained pretty much stable for the fourth year in a row. In Spain, we've yet to get official numbers, but off-the-market officials say that 
Uh, the Spanish market has actually experienced another year of sales growth. There were more increases in 2018, up about 2% for print books. And our listeners may remember that the recession has hit Spain very, very hard. After like a, you know, a many, many years of decline, they lost about 30%, 40% of their sales volume. And that's now starting to come back. Uh, and that's, of course, good news for Spain. Javier Salaya from Dosteque reports that Spain is finally recovering from the financial crisis adding value, and that the growth there is being driven by digital. Uh, it looks like for the first time in 2019, digital sales are going to surpass 10% of the total sales in Spain, and that's due to the growth of eBooks and, wait for it, audio. Audio is a huge driver in Spain now. And also, I should point out library sales. In fact, libraries have been booming in Spain, and libraries in large part are credited with saving the industry from really cratering uh, during that global recession. And sales have actually risen to a pretty substantial percentage of publisher revenues. And of course, libraries kept people reading. Well, with the London Book Fair opening in a month's time, Andrew, what did you hear from the UK? Still to come. More more to come from the UK uh, later on in, in today's meeting. But, you know, more on what's going on there next week. Uh, we can pick up where, what's going on in the UK. But a general trend, uh, not only in the US, but around the world and certainly in the UK, is politics. You know, the US has not only lost its mind, the world seems to have lost its mind. The political stuff is, is really just driving a lot of publishing activity and a lot of concerns in publishing. Uh, it's a consistent thing we've heard, and we definitely heard it among the UK. But here's what I can say, what I've heard from our UK counterparts, uh, the bookseller from, from Philip Jones, is that the print market actually grew both in value, very slightly, and in volume in 2018, uh, about a 2% increase, and just you know maybe a 0.3% lift in volume over last year. Uh, and it's not only in the US where Michelle Obama, by the way, has made an impact. We heard that her uh, best-selling memoir, Becoming, was a major Christmas bestseller and gave a real holiday boost to British booksellers. Uh, and here's an interesting note, too. Four of the top 10 best-selling titles in the UK this year were debuts. So something interesting to look at there. And unlike in the US, where our, the final numbers are still to come still, but ebooks actually are predicted to have grown a little bit in the UK. In fact, ebooks are, are probably going to fall in around 5 to 10% growth in the UK. And digital audio, like it is here in the US, surging in the UK as well. Uh, and also, like we're seeing in the States, you know, the number of independent bookshops is also on the rise in the UK. That marks two years in a row. But of course, Brexit remains a source of major tension, uh, and there's a complete lack of certainty. And, you know, all the major associations have been lobbying very, very heavily on what's going to happen in the copyright arena and about the free movement of staff uh, post-Brexit. And all of this is weighing very heavily on the UK in particular, but on the British publishing market. And Philip Jones from the bookseller says this is something that's been uppermost in the thoughts of UK CEOs uh, when they you know, thought about what they were going to be facing in 2019. So I have much more to report on that next week. Uh, once we finish our meetings, but I can sum things up so far by saying that the book business globally is generally stable by the numbers and quietly concerned by the politics, which in any language translates into uncertainty. When CCC's Beyond the Book returns, Andrew Albanese explains why the fight over controlled digital lending may be going out of control. I'm Christopher Keneally. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly and host of the new PW podcast, Publishers Weekly Insider. 
Each week, we'll talk to PW editors, authors, and other industry guests about the biggest and most exciting stories and books in the world of publishing. New episodes of PW Insider premiere every Friday. So listen at publishersweekly.com slash pwinsider or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to subscribe to PW Insider on iTunes. I'm Christopher Keneally for CCC's Beyond the Book. It's Friday, February 8th, 2019, and Andrew Albanese of Publishers Weekly joins me today, as he does each week, with news and analysis from the world of publishing. A big part of the international discussions taking place this week at PW's offices, Andrew, where you are hosting editors of publishing trade magazines from around the world, concerned libraries and copyright law. The situation in the United States figured prominently because the Association of American Publishers Publishers issued a statement on Wednesday about the practice of controlled digital lending. So tell us about that. Yeah, so that's right. So this week, the Association of American Publishers entered, uh, they released a really lengthy statement, and, and in my opinion, it's sort of a confused statement on what's known as controlled digital lending. And for our listeners, we talked about it recently, but I'll just review briefly what that is. Controlled digital lending is an emerging practice in which a library will scan a print copy of a book that they have legally acquired, a backlist book, not a frontlist book, and then they will loan that PDF, that scan, like it would loan the physical book uh, using a DRM-protected one-user, one-copy model. And crucially, while taking the print book that they made the scan from out of circulation while that digital copy is in use. So specifically, AAP officials took aim at a 2018 white paper on controlled digital lending of library books. It was co-authored by Harvard University Library Copyright Advisor Kyle Courtney and David Hansen, who's the Associate University Librarian at Duke University. And, and that paper, which was released last fall, offers sort of a legal justification for CDL, we call it, which is controlled digital lending. And a 2018 position statement signed by a number of librarians and scholars based on the white paper sort of characterizes the practice of controlled digital lending as a good faith interpretation of U.S. copyright law for American libraries to consider how to continue to perform their traditional lending functions, but using digital technology. Now, AAP officials in their statement this week see the practice as something else systematic digital piracy. CDL not only rationalizes, the AP says, what it sees is systematic infringement. They argue that it, and I'll quote them here, denigrates the incentives of copyright law that copyright law provides to authors and publishers to document, write, invest in, and disseminate literary works for the benefit of the public ecosystem. So, one person's good faith here is another person's denigration of copyright law, I guess. Anyway, the AAP has been following CDL practices for some time, at least since 2017, when AAP CEO Maria Polante sent an email to members asking them to review the activities of the Internet Archive's Open Library. Now, the Open Library project from the Internet Archive is by far the most ambitious booster of CDL. They've been scanning books and making things available for, for quite some time now. And AAP's official statement this week, we should note, comes after the Authors Guild circulated a petition last month against controlled digital lending and the Society of Authors in the UK actually threatened legal action against the Internet Archive over the Open Library Project. So where is all this saber-rattling heading? We'll have to wait and see, but I have to say 
It's a little hysterical. Everyone needs to sit back and take a deep breath, I think. It's a little mischaracterized. And frankly, in my opinion, the issue owes as much to publishers, in fact, almost entirely to publishers, rather than libraries here. So you have to explain that, Andrew. So why do you think this is a problem created by publishers and not by the people doing the copying and the lending? Sure. So first of all, is there a legal issue here that could use some clarification? And the answer is yes. But that's really not where this is headed right now, at least the way the discussion is shaping up. And what I found curious about the AP statement is that, you know, after more than a year of looking at controlled digital lending, it focuses almost entirely on refuting a position paper that librarians are already acknowledging is out of date. And the AAP actually makes no mention of a recent update, a December 21st, 2018 update that was written by attorney Jonathan Band for the Library Copyright Alliance, which concedes that libraries, yeah, we kind of, they kind of have to do revisit the legal foundation of controlled digital lending in light of the recent appeals court decision in Capital Records versus Redigi, the Redigi case, which we've spoken about on this program in the past. Jonathan Band in his paper acknowledges that controlled digital lending as practiced by libraries and other nonprofits like the Internet Archive is, you know, while it's significantly different than the business model, the commercial business that Redigi sought to pioneer, which would have allowed for the reselling of iTunes files, the legal justification for controlled digital lending depends pretty heavily on the same reading of the first sale doctrine, and libraries, Band included, just can't ignore the long shadow cast by the Redigi decision. So, libraries and publishers are actually not that far apart on the legal stuff here, even though it sounds like we're heading towards litigation. But there really wasn't a mention of that in the AAP paper, which I think is a little odd. But here's the thing. I understand the concern the copyright industry lobbyists are always facing when it comes to someone making copies, perhaps unauthorized copies. But I don't think the libraries are denigrating anything here by making a good faith effort. And you know, and why not engage libraries with a solution here? Why do we always have to like sort of angle towards litigation here when we're talking about you know backlist books especially? Why not seek to solve the problem with libraries? So then, Andrew, if unauthorized copying isn't the issue, just what is the problem as you see it? Yeah, so the, the AP suggests that these scanned copies offer a substitute to commercially available ebooks. But, you know, I would urge listeners to check out the Open Library site. And what you'll find is a lot of old, deep backlist books scanned into these really I'm not trying to criticize here, but pretty crappy yellow PDFs that just don't render on a phone very well. They're, they're not substitutes for a good ebook. Um, can you read them on your computer or on another device? You can, but they're simply not a good experience. They certainly do not compete with commercial ebooks. Uh, the concern is, of course, you know, well, what if this practice became widespread, right? What if everyone started scanning books and making them available to be lent? Well, come on. It's 2019, and do we think anyone besides a nonprofit archive is going to invest in the scanning of these old books and managing a cumbersome digital lending practice? I mean, this practice, simply put, is not going to become widespread, and there's been no evidence of any market impact now, and I don't think there's going to be. You know, but what the libraries are really trying to address here, getting to your question, is that there's a market failure when it comes to ebooks. I mean, libraries don't want to be spending their time scanning their old ebooks and managing an e lending system. They want to buy these books. But as our listeners know, ebook editions for most publishers cost triple the price of consumer ebooks or print books for that matter, and they expire. You know, either after a year or after a certain number of lends, poof, they're gone out of the collection. And libraries cannot function like that. 
that. It's inefficient and it's just, it, it hurts them in terms of building a good usable collection for scholars. So it's kind of amazing to me that as this story has gained steam, that libraries are the ones that are being portrayed as the pernicious party here for trying to find a way to lend a book digitally the way they've always done. And really, what's the difference if you read it in print or a digital edition if you've bought it and you're only circulating one copy at a time? Yeah, on the other hand, publishers have used these, this digital licensing regime to completely override the ability of libraries to buy and lend ebooks. They're only able to license these really expensive editions that expire. To me, that's a bit pernicious. So, I think we can safely say two things. If this is heading towards litigation, I would urge everyone to be very careful here because, you know, publishers especially may think that they're litigating the library's unauthorized copying, but they may well wind up litigating the ebook business and the ebook business practices. You know, just look at the rhetoric of the AAP now and in the Google and the Georgia State cases, which is very reminiscent, and then look at how those cases played out in court not like the AP thought they would. And two, you can't tell me that there's not an easier business solution to this problem than there is a legal solution. So, you know, libraries don't want to be scanning these books. They don't want to be going to court. They want to be buying them and archiving them and making them available on a one-to-one -one loaning basis like they do for print books. And finally, I'm just going to close by saying that in 2019, the idea that we're still setting our hair on fire over library book scanning, I just find that astounding. Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Senior Writer, thanks for speaking with me today and every Friday on CCC's Beyond the Book. My pleasure, as always. Coming next on Beyond the Book... At the end of the 19th century, many local railroads in the United States became consolidated into giant iron networks. The anti-competitive practices that resulted soon made these trusts, also called monopolies, a hot political issue. More than a century later, a new rebellion is gathering strength against domineering players on the digital network. The digital network that is our new railroad for e-commerce and much more. A leader in that effort is Lena Khan, whose January 2017 article for the Yale Law Journal, Amazon's Antitrust Paradox, argued that the e-commerce giant has amassed a level of market control that is damaging, not only to its competitors, but also to society. Lena Khan was recently named to the Politico 50, a list of thinkers whose ideas are driving politics. She spoke with me ahead of this weekend's PubWest 2019 conference in Santa Fe, where she will deliver a keynote address. In many regards, Amazon has become a form of infrastructure for 21st century commerce. So if you're an independent merchant, an independent producer, and you want to reach consumers in the 21st century digital markets, you have to ride Amazon's rails. Amazon now captures one of every $2 spent online, um, and that share is growing significantly. Uh, over 50% of all American households are prime consumers or prime members, and around 99% of prime customers stop engaging in any real price comparison. So Amazon's capture of online commerce and of the infrastructure of online commerce is quite significant, and it's able to use that dominance in ways that I argue are bad for competition. Amazon Antitrust and the E-Commerce Railroad, next on Beyond the Book. Beyond the Book is produced by Copyright Clearance Center. Our co-producer and recording engineer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. Subscribe to the program wherever you go for podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. The complete Beyond the Book podcast archive is available at beyondthebook.com. 
I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for listening and join us again soon on CCC's Beyond the Book. 